and a couple of weeks ago, as listeners will know, Professor Monica McWilliams, who was one of the co-founders of the Women's Coalition Party in Northern Ireland and a co-signatory of the Good Friday Agreement, was here in Scariff to open the Scariff Festival. And Monica gave me an interview. We knew each other a long time ago. And I began by asking her to talk about what the civil rights issue in Northern Ireland was, to remind people, because... It's a long time ago now and people forget. And she gave me, I think, an interesting uh, picture of that, Tom. So will we go straight into it? Exactly. So today we're talking to Professor Monica McWilliams, a Northern Ireland academic, a peace activist, a human rights defender and a former politician in Northern Ireland. Monica, you're very welcome to Scarif Library. Thanks very much. You're... um, very very well known for all the activism in your life in different spheres but tell us about your early life and how you came to be involved in politics what was the trigger for you well in answer to how you get involved in politics I believe everything is political oh. what school you go to um, who's providing your health care uh, what decisions you're making in your family in relation to the care of your children So people often ask me about formal politics and how I got elected or how I came to campaign for legislative change. But I guess it was from my own experience of growing up in Northern Ireland in a small town like Scariff. My father was a cattle dealer and we grew up in a very happy household um, but very aware of the segregation in the village and it was the early 60s, the troubles were starting and there was a lot of discussion about the future of Northern Ireland. Um, Terence O'Neill was meeting Sean Lamas, the Taoiseach from the Republic, the Prime Minister from Northern Ireland and there was a lot of controversy over whether Terence O'Neill should meet Sean Lamas um, and there was people like Ian Paisley who had later became very famous for um, and very disagreeable uh, towards Terence O'Neill's politics. And so in our house we would have been discussing all this um, and the importance of a peaceful way forward. And then there was the civil rights marches. And my family and my father in particular would have been very uh, strong advocate for civil rights. And for our listeners, would you just remind us of what the issues were, just briefly, in Northern Ireland at the time, about civil rights? Well, there was a very unfair system of allocation of housing. Um, Literally, it was down to whether you were a Catholic or a Protestant. Catholics didn't get um, the same allocation. And it was also to do with gerrymandering, that if you had a property... Um, and were paying rates, you were able to vote. If you didn't have a property, you couldn't get a vote. And so the whole campaign was around the right to vote, which, looking back now, is incredible to think that they called themselves a democracy. And yet people were disenfranchised. They were also large families, were living in very overcrowded conditions. In our own town, there was a slum area, it was known as Kabul, and I write about it in my opening chapter of the book. 
and stand up and speak out because it's a memoir about how I felt about the conditions under which people were living. And there was another town near us um, which had tin roofs, corrugated sink roofs, and it was known as Tin Town. Well, that's where the Catholics were known to live. And so it was in your face. It was in your space. And you could not have not seen the discrimination all around you, even growing up. And so we talked about it in our own home. Also, we were very aware of how we were being stopped on the road. And I write about this in the book, about the special... Um, well, they were known as, after partition of Ireland, the RUC, the police, came in and there was a, a group that, of police officers in particular who were actually not good police officers and would stop you on the road and if they saw any Catholic symbols in the car, such as a cross or a medal or the statue of the Virgin Mary on the dashboard, they would reach in and pull it down and throw it on the ground and stamp on it. Um, so if they were looking for the allegiance of all of the people towards the government and in turn the government employing the police to do a fair job, they didn't get it. And there was no allegiance towards the Northern Ireland government from the Catholics in Northern Ireland at that time. No, indeed. And there was the B Specials group as well. That's who I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. And they were notorious. So part of the civil rights campaign was to stand down the B Specials. Mm -hmm. Um, It was to have the the slogan we marched with was one man, one vote. Looking back now, I would say one person, one vote. Yes. (laughs) And um, fair housing and fair employment. The discrimination in employment was shocking. The statistics speak for themselves. In fact, I quote in the book, in the opening of my second chapter called Getting Educated for Civil Rights, I quote um, what, now looking back, he was definitely a statesman, Morris Hayes. And he wrote a book and he said, when the masses start to read, the establishment is in trouble. When they start to count, the game is up. And so what we started doing and what the civil rights activists started doing was to keep a fist of facts. And a fist of facts meant they documented everything. And they documented the figures. And they sent the figures up to the direct rule ministers um, and thinking they would get further with Westminster, and they didn't. And because of the discrimination of the Stormont ministers, they would be asked to respond. And, of course, you were asking the very minister who was overseeing the discrimination to respond to the very discrimination that he was authorising. So it was a joke. And that's why people took to the streets. And we had watched what had happened in the United States under the civil rights banners, and Martin Luther King in particular. And that swept across the Atlantic. It swept into Northern Ireland. And it swept into a very peaceful form of protest until the army responded with CS gas and plastic bullets, rubber bullets as they were first, and people got very angry. So I say that it's not sensible um, to have peaceful protests, um, authorised protests, and people did not intend to have a violent outlook on any way when they were going out on those. Otherwise, my father wouldn't have taken us as young teenagers. Um, And to face CS gas and rubber bullets and being told this is an illegal march and this is what we're going to do to you. So the oppressive apparatus of the state 
is often how revolutions start, it's often how conflict breaks out, and it's often how a war goes on for 30 years. And not the sensible people uh, in the political sphere deciding at a very early stage that something needed to be done. As they said in Northern Ireland, uh, the slogan back to the protesters was not an inch. And when an inch was finally given, the protesters in turn, unfortunately some of them became militant, said, um, too late. And by then, an outbreak of violence had started. And unfortunately continued for a very long time after that. Yeah, little did we think that when it first broke out, and I say this now when I'm involved in other conflicts, um, you never know how to bring that to an end. And the negotiations should have started then, and they didn't. And we thought that most people were marching for the same rights as people in London, Glasgow, Liverpool, and that they would come automatically as part of being in the United Kingdom. But it was a very disunited kingdom, and those rights didn't come. Eventually, the storm in Parliament was prorogued. Direct rule came in. Fair employment legislation came in, the housing executive took over as the authority from the local councils who were very discriminatory, the B-specials were disbanded and one by one the demands began to be attended to. But by then um, internment had happened and as a response to internment the IRA started to get organised because there had been an outbreak, the first outbreak was actually in the Shankill. And they felt that the introduction of these rights was taking away from their rights. Threatening their rights. And it was shocking that they should see it that way because later as a human rights commissioner, my task was to say that human rights are for all. In fact, one of the chapters in the book is called that. But that's not how it's seen when you're in conflict. If you get your rights, it must mean you're taking away my rights. And so the conflict broke out. Then the bombs started going off. People started getting murdered in the streets. It was neighbour on neighbour, unlike most conflicts elsewhere, um, where people are either in the forests or coming in from armed groups outside. These were neighbour on neighbour in the streets, and also the British Army were a party to that. I don't like the view that it was a tribal warfare or that it was an internecine warfare. The army were involved, and the army, at the behest of the British government, were involved. And, of course, the paramilitaries, which is the loyalists, the very word para means they saw themselves fighting on the side of the British army as illegal armed groups, but they felt the army didn't go far enough and they would go further. And as a response, and actually to defend their areas, People thought that the IRA had started in the late 60s. They did not start until the 70s. And in the beginning, they were chastised as the name IRA, meaning I ran away. And they felt, well, we better get ourselves organised into a defence force. And the first names were Citizens Defence Association. And later, of course, when they realised that that was not the way that they had no guns, they began to look for um, weapons from outside and began to get more sophisticated in the nature of those weapons. Um, And that went on for 30 years. And so when it came to coming to the negotiations for the Good Friday Agreement, for example, 
you and Pearl Sagan uh, co-founded the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition, which had a very significant role, I think, to play in how negotiations proceeded, and particularly perhaps in the process Mm -hmm. itself. Could you say something about that for our listeners? Well, coming out of civil rights, most of us had cut our political teeth on civil rights, knowing what it took to lobby, to advocate, to campaign, to demand a change of legislation. But there was no notion of women's rights. And it was predominantly male civil rights movement, even though it was the women who were drafting the papers and typing up the manifestos. And I knew all those women. So it was a male model kind of thing? It was. We became very conscious of that. And of course the Sex Discrimination Act had come into Britain in 75, but not to Northern Ireland, because they argued the only problem was religious discrimination. And so we took again to the streets to demand that that be extended. And as a consequence then, we saw that many other pieces of legislation needed to come in, domestic violence legislation, the legislation on um, making rape a criminal offence. And so one by one, the movement grew and grew. And that started 25 years prior to the peace talks. So by the time the peace talks were declared after the ceasefires, in 1994, we got together and asked, are there going to be any women in these parties that are standing for election? And we never got an answer. And we thought, okay, we'll maybe form a vanguard movement and show them that it's possible that there are all these women leaders. I often say we could have ended up with Bosnia had we not had the women leadership that we saw in those communities working across the interfaces. So potentially we knew there were fantastic women there who would be good negotiators. They'd cut their teeth on negotiating every single day um, in their own communities to keep their families safe, to keep their children safe, with people on the other side. And those groups had been formed. And when you have faced domestic violence and we set up the refuges and the shelters, it didn't matter whether you were pro-British or pro-Irish, Protestant or Catholic. If you were facing... Um, another form of terror, which we call domestic terrorism inside the home, then it was really important that you reached out and campaigned on both sides. So the networks were there, that's the first point. The influencers were in place, and all we had to do was gather them together quickly. And we had six weeks to get organised if we were going to form our own party, when we didn't get an answer from the other parties. And once they discovered that we had formed our party and meant business, and meant business they began to get, see the opportunity. And actually they got a shock when we got elected. There were ten parties that were going to the peace talks and we got elected as the ninth party. We didn't have to wait to the very last party. The Labour Party were the last ones to get elected. But uh, the system hadn't been designed to bring women in. It was designed to bring armed groups in. Um, And I tell the story everywhere where I go that Northern Ireland kind of set a precedent of having civic society representatives under the Women's Coalition hat. It had the armed groups, which normally are always at the table when you negotiate a transition. And it had the old long-standing constitutional parties. There was the British and Irish government. So it had the ingredients of a very inclusive process. And so the next question was, what are you going to negotiate? And one of the tenets of the Good Friday Agreement, as I understand it, 
is that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Mm. And there have been some very significant changes in Northern Ireland society as a result, indeed, of the Good Friday Agreement. But you've also referred to the unfinished business that's still there. And I wonder, could you say something about, for instance, what you feel are the most significant changes that have occurred, and then something about what still very much needs to be done? Well, the constitutional questions were going to be the number one. How you were going to build relationships inside Northern Ireland, how were we going to be governed? Would people give allegiance to that form of governance? Mm -hmm. And hence the notion came that it had to be a power-sharing arrangement that never again would it go back to majoritarianism. And that was settled. The North-South relationships with North-South bodies, of which Waterways Ireland is one of the six, was also settled, and how we would build on that North with the Ministerial Council. And then the third piece was how would we build relationships between Ireland and Britain. The long-standing nature of the conflict goes back hundreds of years and that was very important so it was a good discussion in fact it was Charlie Hockey initially had that discussion way back um, with Margaret Thatcher and had come up with the idea of consent the principle of consent um, and so that was agreed so once you had the constitutional arrangements what else needed to be there and Seamus Mann coined the phrase, it was Sunningdale for slow learners. Sunningdale had been away back in 74. I disagree that the peace agreement was much, much more comprehensive than what was in the Sunningdale agreement, which just focused on the constitutional arrangements. So what else did we do? We looked at the whole policing and criminal justice, which in most conflicts needs to be attended to, um, and came up with the Independent International Commission, which today is seen as a successful model for other countries. We then also looked at the social um, and economic issues which had created so much inequality and perhaps that's the, one of the main ones that wasn't responded to in the way that was anticipated. There was a proposal for a Bill of Rights which later fell to me to draft the advice as Chief Commissioner um, and that has never been put in place. I did draft the advice, I passed it to the Secretary of State and the Prime Minister in, in 2010. Um, so 13 years later, it still sits in 10 Downing Street. Is that just latitude on, on behalf of the British government? Well, no, because the Conservative government came into power and said that Northern Ireland shouldn't be a separate place. And since uh, Great Britain didn't have a Bill of Rights, Northern Ireland wouldn't have a Bill of Rights. And it justified it on the grounds that the European Convention of Human Rights was incorporated into law under the Human Rights Act, and therefore nothing more was needed. So my response to that is, so it's just an aspiration then that we wrote in the agreement to be British-Irish or both? Or was that meant to be a judicial right that would then be a foundational right irrespective of the constitutional arrangements ever in the future, whether we remain with the UK or whether we become part of a shared island? You have the right, no matter what background you come from, to be British-Irish or both. And that just remains there, hanging in the air, we and the Women's Coalition also put forward others under a section called the Needs of Victims and Reconciliation. We paid attention to what would happen to victims. Combatants always pay attention to the release of prisoners, and indeed it was agreed that the prisoners would be released after two years on the condition there would be no reoccurrence and that there would be no return to their paramilitary organisations. 
And that was pretty successful. Demobilisation, disarmament, decommissioning. But we didn't pay enough attention to that reintegration and hence the reason why today, all these years later, I'm a commissioner on the Independent Reporting Commission for the Disbandment of Paramilitaries under a treaty between the British and Irish governments. The Civic Forum, you have the Citizens' Assembly in the south of Ireland. We should have had the equivalent of a Citizens' Assembly. It's called a Civic Forum because the language of Citizens' Assembly wasn't around. But we had the foresight to think, if politicians don't get along or can't agree on a contentious issue, which was always going to be the case in Northern Ireland, wouldn't it be useful to have a forum of civic representatives, business leaders, trade unions? I'd seen the model in Europe, and I'd seen it here. Um, and, you know, uh, the inclusiveness of different sectors, disability, victims' voices, women's voices, um, representatives of, of the youth and children. And depending on the theme or the topic, bring them together under a forum and produce advice. And it's in the agreement, but it's not existing. Um, and it was disappointing once the power-sharing arrangements got established in that first assembly, of which I was an elected member. I could quickly see how the agreement was being picked at. That it was cherry-picked, I'll have this piece, you can have that piece. Mm-hmm. But the pieces that really sustain long-term peace, such as integration, education, shared housing, uh, the establishment of a civic forum, resources for young people, community development, it's all in the agreement, social and uh, economic opportunities. Um, and how those policies would be brought forward. They all ended up dropping off the table. And so if we do go back into negotiations again about um, the potential for a referendum in the south of Ireland, for North and South, or even indeed in terms of Brexit and the fallout, those are important issues to have back on the table and get them discussed um, for the long-term stability and prosperity. Of Northern Ireland, so you could say perhaps the Women's Coalition was way ahead of its time. Seems to be indeed. And the other thing about it is that those issues are still out there, waiting for, I suppose, an opportunity to happen. More than that, waiting for a mechanism that can bring them into being and make them effective for heaven's sake. How can that happen in the current situation with utter stasis in the Assembly? And no well, so foreseeable. Way some forward. of it falls to the Irish government and the British government, oh, mm-hmm. um, because there is an intergovernmental council, which was established by the agreement, and some of that obviously falls to them working together, particularly in the absence of an assembly at the moment, to bring forward decisions that affect the livelihoods in Northern Ireland. And some of it falls to the Northern Ireland Assembly. It is a devolved government. It has devolved powers, um, and it can do these things, but where there's a lot of disagreement um, between Sinn Féin and the DUP on still seeing human rights in the way that the unionists saw it as a a legacy of civil rights um, and therefore don't see the need for human bill of rights in the same way as nationalists do. But my view back to them is that you are no longer in a majority. There's nobody actually could refer to either side as a minority. And these rights are actually protection for both. And therefore you better wake, wake up and smell the coffee. Because you could be the very group who would benefit from these very rights that you have argued for so long are not needed. So they may come for different reasons. Because circumstances change all the time. 
So some of that, as I say, falls to the Northern Ireland Assembly. And quite a lot of it will fall to good, strong leadership, both from civic society and from those future politicians, emerging young leaders, who want to see a different Northern Ireland than the one that we grew through. Yes, recent elections seem to indicate that there's a group of young people who just don't want to see themselves as either, as it were, side, as we used to mm. always think of it, and indeed still do, really. Mm. Um, so I thought that was a very hopeful thing. Unfortunately, though, so many young people are leaving both Northern and Southern Ireland mm. to go to other places. Are we losing that generation, do you think? Or? Yes, and some of them are coming back and did come back after the peace agreement. But there is a frustration that by now it should have been much more stable. Um, but they are voting differently and they're voting on climate justice which unites everyone and they're voting on issues that they would like to see for the future and not the old orange and green card being played and trumped all the time um, and uh, that's healthy, that's a good thing to have and whether or not it plays out on the, the more of the older politicians falling away um, and giving way to these newer voices we will wait and see but yes, that's why they're arguing that the polls are showing uh, something very different than what would have happened 10 or 20 years ago. This is a good, hopeful note uh, to finish up our chat today, I think. I want to thank you very much, Monica, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule today especially to talk to me and to talk to our listeners about what's such an important issue for the whole island going forward. Thank you very much, Professor Monica McGillan.